Our text today will be uh, verses 12 through 23 in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So you won't see a whole lot on the screen today. We're going to be like, uh, like we used to do in church, right? Where we had all this technology. Uh, maybe I'm the only one that remembers that. I don't know. <laughs> Old enough to do so. I'm glad to have my wife here. Honey, raise your hand so everybody can see you. There she is. Beautiful wife. Amen. I, I realized that she upgraded me. Ain't no doubt about that. That's right. That's right. You did, honey. See? I told you. I, and she knows it, too. That's right. That's right. I, I'm, I'm the blessed one here. <laughs> All right. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, I was at a dinner party, and the conversation, as it uh, so often does when I attend dinner parties and things like that, because of uh, my status as a pastor, conversation turned to religion. And as a pastor, right when that happens, my spiritual antenna immediately go up because I've always found it fascinating to listen to the perceptions people have about God, faith, and even organized religion, as if unorganized religion is somehow something to be desired. So today, I want to really share with you, perhaps try to answer a question that came up in my mind at that dinner party, and that question is this, are we all in the same boat? Are we all in the same boat? Now, as I was sitting there and I listened to the flow of the conversation, I knew that eventually someone would ask me, you know, they would say, well, pastor, what do you think? The conversation turned to the subject of whether religion had any real value, or if it did, whether one religion or faith distinction was better than another. In fact, one gentleman vehemently defended the ideal that no matter what, humanity was all in the same boat. In his mind, in the end, God, if he existed, would look at each of us the same. There would be no distinction because we were all imperfect. His reasoning was like many in our world today. He lived by the creed that stated, why pay homage to God or any deity because all of us must die. And as I prepared for this message today, I wondered to myself if this man had ever read the book of Ecclesiastes. He had, he had sort of a fatalist view of life, and he determined to enjoy life while he could because in his heart, he believed that, uh, he believed we that, 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 that as human beings, we are essentially all in the same boat. Now, he recognized that there exists many differences between people. He knew that some folks like McDonald's and other folks like Wendy's. He knew that some people had bountiful resources 
while others struggled to find enough food to eat on a daily basis. He even acknowledged that some humans are smarter than others. Go figure that one, right? Which, by the way, explains why men get married, because we're just not so smart. We have to marry someone. That, come on, guys, help me out. We have to marry someone that, that makes us smart. Isn't that right? Great. Now, this gentleman, uh, some ladies are, uh, yep, that's right. <laughs> this gentleman captured the attention of those at the table with his philosophical conclusion that even though there exists great diversity and difference among human and the human condition in this world, he said we are all essentially in the same boat. Now, as I considered this passage in Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 23, I wondered if Solomon the preacher-teacher of this book, shared the same philosophy to some degree. Does the dismay and seemingly philosophical frustration of Solomon lead us to believe that he saw humanity in much the same way as this gentleman with whom I shared a table years ago? The preacher writes these words in Ecclesiastes 2, 12 and 13, he says this. He says, so I, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And he says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. He goes on in verse 14 to say, The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Verse 15, he says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Verse 16, he says, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Now, as we look at this entire text from 12 to 23, and I realize that we've skipped 1 through 11, and we'll get back to that in the coming weeks in this series but in 12 through 23, we look at this entire text and, and, and out jumps three critical elements that we gain. The first thing here is, is that we learn that wisdom is greater than folly. The preacher teacher of Ecclesiastes turns again to examine the comparative analysis of the value of wisdom when juxtaposed against a life of foolishness and excess. He is determined to see if his previous conclusion regarding the superiority of wisdom over folly is the correct conclusion. The preacher here needed confirmation and says he turns again to compare wisdom and folly. How often, my brothers and sisters, are we confronted in life with the wise choice versus the foolish choice. I don't know about you, but I can remember many times 
when the wise choice was right in front of me, and it's the foolish choice that I made. Just throw your hand up real fast. Don't let anybody see. Don't let anybody see. They, everybody thinks you're really holy. Don't, don't, let them, don't let them think you made that kind of choice. But we've done that in our lives. We've seen that. Now, in verse 13, the preacher teacher here gives us his conclusion. He says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The preacher notes that wisdom is still superior to madness and folly. It is a logical conclusion that a life in pursuit of wisdom will lead to far less calamity, one would think, than a life in pursuit of madness or foolishness. Yet we live in a world where this conclusion seems to be turned upside down. That the logic that if you live a life of wisdom and you will try to ensure in that life or perhaps ensure to some degree to the best of your ability that calamity will not be the outcome is turned upside down in the world in which we live. Now, what is wise is called foolish. And what is foolish is called wise. So, our daily, our daily news confirms this. Foolishness seems to be the pursuit of the human condition while wisdom and critical thinking is becoming relics of past enlightenment. We only have to look at our daily newscast to see just how foolishness has become the wisdom of the day. And if you dare say anything that's logical, or sometimes just go on your kid's social media page. <laughs> you'll, you'll see how this emerging generation is questioning time-tested wisdom. And why? I would dare say that one of the reasons why they question this time-tested wisdom, this wisdom that we grew up with, some of us in my age bracket, the reason they question it is because they have heard us say it and unfortunately seldom seen us live it. I'll let that marinate for just a minute. You see, the preacher here compares this difference between wisdom and foolishness to the difference between light and darkness. And this is an apt and meaningful comparison because of the stark differences between light and darkness. Light and darkness have difficulty existing in a state of cooperation. In the natural sense, one of them is always chasing the other. The sun rises and the night flees. But in the evening, the sun sets and darkness returns. Yet even in this example from nature, we see a great spiritual lesson. It is the sun that sets the standard. Wherever there is light, darkness must flee. Know this, know this, saints of God, and I'm going to throw this in for free. When your light shines, 
Like a city upon a hill, the darkness of evil and the schemes of Satan are exposed in such a way that people will see the glory of God in your life. They'll see God's glory all over you. So then the the preacher here says that there is more gain in walking and living in the light than there is in stumbling and falling in the darkness. In the light, we see clearly. In darkness, we grope about, asking our hands to do that which our eyes were created to do. The preacher continues his diatribe by saying this. In verse 14, he says, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. We encourage, we are encouraged to hear that wisdom is like having eyes. And folly or foolishness is a dangerous path in the darkness of one's own limited mind. But then the preacher takes an ominous turn in his discourse. In verse 15, he says that the same ultimate destiny awaits both the wise man and the foolish man. While they may, have, while they may both have a very different outcome in life. Neither of them will be able to escape the ultimate equalizer called death. Death comes to all men, says the preacher. Whether wise or foolish, they both must die. Now that might seem a little depressing because I see some of the young people look at me like, I'm not thinking about death. I'm, <laughs> I'm young. I'm full of energy. I, I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. I've heard many messages and sermons uh, uh, about the, the inevitability of death. And the, and the reality is, when I was 20 years old, I, I wasn't even considering that possibility. But when I got that first real ache and pain of age, you know those new ones you get? Like, I never felt that before. I realize that death is inevitable. The moment we, we are born, essentially, we begin to die. It is the reality of the human condition. So he says, death comes to all men. And this forced me to think about that man, if that man at the dinner table years ago Was he correct? Was he right? When I think about that, are we all really in the same boat? No matter what happens in life, whether we live wisely or we live foolishly, we all must die. The the preacher here in our text has strong emotion and feeling about this. You can almost sense it jumping off the page 
as you read it. You can almost sense some of his dismay when you read him saying that wisdom is one thing and, and foolishness is another, but the wise die and so do the foolish. We have that in common. We can sense a real conundrum here. What good, you can almost sense the preacher asking this question, what good is living a life marked and filled with wisdom if indeed the wise man must die just like the fool who ignores wisdom? This question indeed plagues the mind of many people, some who may be in this room today, who consider faith in Christ and it remains an unspoken question in, in, in the inner recesses of our mind. What good is it to follow God if death is inevitable for all people? Why should I attend a small group? Why should I attend worship on Sunday? Why, when I could be doing all these other things that I can think of, some of us are thinking of them right now, Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But why should I do all of these? Should I do all that is required by God? Why should I love my neighbor as myself? Why should I care about others? Why should I extend myself and put the interests of others over my own? If ultimately, if I never did that, I would die just like the guy who does all of that. Now, that's not something we talk about out loud. It's not something that makes us look good if we were to say it, if we even let people know that we were thinking it. And so the preacher of our text has the audacity, the gall to wonder aloud and to conclude the vanity or deceptive futility of it all. In verse 16, he says this, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And that's interesting because all of us know somebody that's kind of crazy, right? Just throw your hand up real fast. You know some crazy folks, yeah. Just little not, you know, all your elevator not to the top floor. You know, one brick short of a load. You know, just, we, we all know some people. And when we think about, when we think about that, we think about those folks, and, and yet they're quickly forgotten. But here's the thing. Even the people that we admire are quickly forgotten. Even the ones who laid the foundation for this country are quickly forgotten. Even those who have done great works for the good of the human condition are quickly forgotten. And look at your neighbor and look them in the eye right now, the one next to you, and say this, you too will be forgotten. Now, some husbands and wives look at each other like, you better not forget me. <laughs> don't you ever. <laughs> How dare you even mention that. Don't listen to that preacher up there. Don't, <laughs> don't you forget me. No, not at all. And, and, and yet, 
the truth of the matter is, if time goes on another 500 years, who will really remember us? Somewhere in the annals of history, I have a great, 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 great grandfather. I have no clue who he is. Don't know what he did. No idea of what his life was like. Nothing. There's no record handed down. There's no recording of his voice. I don't know how tall he was. I don't know if you know how many children he had. I have no idea. Even when we live well, we will be forgotten. Now that's that's gonna, that kind of wounds some of the superstars in here today. I'm just, <laughs> but stay with me. Stay with me. And so, why do all this good if we're going to be forgotten? If no one will remember. Then, my brothers and sisters, just as if the preacher here turns a page in the book, the preacher introduces kind of the next critical element that we need to get out of this passage, 12 through 23. And here it is right here. You cannot take anything through death's door. Nothing. It's inevitable that we all will die, and it's just as inevitable that you will go through that door empty-handed. There is nothing. So the preacher says this in verse 17. He says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he, watch this now, he will be master of all for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair of all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil or work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil, he says. Verse 22, he says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. How many times have we learned this truth? How many times have we seen people of great wealth and influence walk through the door of death empty-handed? We even joke to ourselves that we must spend it all, spend everything that we earn after all. You can't take it with you. And, and, and the interesting thing about the axiom, you can't take it with you, is that this is a remark common to all humanity. How many people have heard people say that? You can't take it with you, right? right? In fact, even those who reject 
faith in Christ still say you can't take it with you. And I find this interesting because these words presuppose there is a journey and that there is a place to which we will go after death. You can't take it with you. Where are you going? What do you mean? If there's nowhere to go, what, what, what difference would it make? And so perhaps without even realizing it, the atheist even concludes and confirms the existence of something or somewhere else after death. Now, the next time you hear one of your atheist friends say that, well, you know you can't take it with you. Oh, well, let me, let's talk about that. You're saying that there's some journey that you go through after you pass from this world. And therein lies the conversation we need to have. And so the preacher acknowledges here a timeless truth that all toil, all labor for gain is meaningless. It strives, if it strives for the foolish proposition that somehow accumulation of wealth and material things will assist us in escaping the great inevitability of death. Now, I have a, a 60-inch TV at home. I love that TV. I don't really love the TV, but you know what I mean. My wife said to me one day that she wanted to get rid of that TV. I said, okay, as long as we get one bigger. <laughs> Come on, guys, help me out here. We walk into H.H. Gregg, and they've got a 120-inch TV, and it's like the heavens have opened up. Thank you, God. <laughs> they now have a TV that rolls up like a mat, and you can lay on your wall. How wonderful would it be? And so I think of all of that, I'm like, man, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to die one day, and I can't take my TV with me. I hope God has ESPN. I'm just saying. I, <laughs> maybe that's just me. I don't know. But, but death is inevitable. Even if we work, labor, toil, and save everything we earn, death still comes. Death comes for the frugal one, and death comes for the spendthrift. Death comes to the tightwad, and, and death comes to the one who spends like no tomorrow. Death comes to the ant who saved all summer to provide for the winter of life, and death comes to the grasshopper who saved nothing and even is hungry when winter comes. Death is inevitable to all humanity. The preacher in our text reaches a point of admitted despair because the realization of the inevitability of death leads to another realization. He realizes that the labor of his hands will provide enjoyment for somebody else. How about that? He says, so I turned and gave my heart over to despair because 
all my, of all my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. I can almost see him saying, this is crazy. This is nuts. I worked hard my whole life and someone else is going to enjoy the fruit of my labor. He called this vanity and a great evil. The preacher here laments the seemingly unfairness of life. How is it fair for me to work just so someone else can enjoy the fruits of my labor gain through my pursuit of wisdom? Seems unfair, doesn't it? Come on, parents, help me out. <laughs> One day your child that ignored all of your pleas to get their life in order <laughs> may live mortgage-free in the house <laughs> for which you labored so hard. That kid that you said would never amount to anything <laughs> will watch your TV <laughs> with their feet on your furniture <laughs> and say, this is the life. <laughs> your only hope is that somewhere along the line, they toast you. <laughs> Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> so, so the preacher, I'm laughing because some of the kids are like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so the preacher reminds us, he reminds us all that we cannot travel through death's door with anything of this world. We must leave behind everything for which we toiled and labored. Our homes, our cars, our money must all stay as we make the transition through the door of death. I've seen a lot of funerals in my 30 years of pastoral ministry, and I was always amazed at how people try to put things in the casket as if somehow that's not going to be there forever with the person that's buried. I've seen people put a lot of things, pictures, and, and, and one time I saw a person put a DVD in the casket. Maybe God has a DVD player, I don't know. But you're not going to be able to take any of that with you when you make that transition. Now that we're thoroughly in despair. Now that we're realizing as parents have looked at children and say, I'm selling my house before I leave here, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> now that we're in that place where Solomon found himself in despair over the fact that he would work and work and work and somebody else would enjoy the fruits of his wise labor. We have one more critical element 
to share with you. And that is this. Only Christ can make life worth living. Christ is the only one who makes this life worthwhile. As I reflect back to the comments made by that gentleman at the dinner table, I realized that I was momentarily perplexed and even a little stunned by his, confu- his conclusion that we were all in the same boat and therefore there is little hope beyond this world. I grudgingly admit that my faith was shaken for a moment. My confidence weakened and my hope just a little swayed. Oh, but then, but then I remembered the one in whom I hoped. I remembered the one that makes all the difference. I remembered the one who is the captain of my ship. And I said to the brother that we are not all in the same boat. I told him, That on the stormy sea of life, there isn't just one boat. On the contrary, there are two boats. Each of us is in one or the other. Granted, the storm comes for both boats. Both boats are tossed upon the restless sea of time. Cloudy skies and howling tempests oft succeed bright sunshine for both boats. In this life. Both boats enjoy both the sun and the rain. In this life, both of the ships enjoy light and seemingly a hopeless and dark midnight. But my brothers and sisters, there is one great difference between these ships, and that is the identity of the captain. On one boat, there are many captains, each vying for superiority, each trying to exert dominance over the other, each willing to undercut the other for personal gain. But on the other boat, there is only one captain. His name is Jesus. He is in charge. He is there to protect the cover and cover his crew. He is steering the ship through the tough and choppy waters of life. And when the storm arises, it is better, my brothers and sisters, to be on the boat with Jesus. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 4, it says this, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And verse 37 says this, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. And I don't know a lot about sailing, but I think it's good to keep water on the outside of the boat. So the boat was filling up with water, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he he awoke. And the Bible says he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. He said to them, 
Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And I say to you, as you navigate life, as you think about the inevitability of your death, do not be afraid. Just remember who is on your ship. Remember who is the one that has the power to steal the wind and to calm the waves so that he can say in your life, peace, be still. Remember who is the one that leads and guides as we navigate this life. The Bible says in verse 41 of that chapter, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? There is only one way, my brothers and sisters, to get on the ship with Jesus. Your boarding pass is to believe the gospel. To believe in your heart that he gave his life for your sin and to confess with your mouth that you believe that God raised him from the dead. To give us and all who believe victory over the inevitability of death. I challenge you today. If you're not on board, get on board. I challenge you today that if you're sitting here and you're wavering between two opinions, trying to decide if you're going to get on the ship with Jesus as the captain, let me tell you, you're already on the other ship. When you're tired of fighting your own battles, when you're tired of using what you believe is the best ability of your own mind, and you're ready to commit your life and your heart to the one who controls everything, to the one who can say, if you need a job, I have a job for you. To the one who can say that by my word, I can heal your body. To the one who can say that if your marriage is broken, I can fix it. To the one who can say that no matter what you're going through, I am there for you. Because I loved you so much that I went to a cross I paid a debt that I did not owe so that you who couldn't pay that debt that you did owe could have an opportunity to enjoy life everlasting. So are we all in the same boat? No, we're not. We're not in the same boat with people who have rejected Christ. And I'm saying here today that he loves you so much that if you would just take a moment and realize in your heart how much he loves you. As we sung that song, how he loves us. If you would take a moment and realize that today, 
you would know that the opportunity for you to get on the right ship so that when death comes, and it will come, Solomon was right about that, you will work and somebody else will enjoy the fruit of your labor. Death will come to the wise and to the foolish. But the difference is this, that when death comes to the Christian, we don't cower in fear walking through that door because we know that that door is the door to life eternal with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Enjoy Him. Live in Him. For it is in Him we live and we move and we have our being.